Amen. Well, good morning, church family. I can't see you. You can all see me, which is really an unfortunate exchange. It should be the other way around. Um, why don't you all just type into the comments, if you haven't already, type into the comments that you're here, that you're watching. It's so good to see each other's names and to hear from each other. I was sitting in the pew this morning and liking a few of your comments because it reminds me that there's real people on the other end of this live stream, that I'm not preaching to a camera, although there's a camera in front of me and the worship team. That's it. Um, I need to be reminded that we are a people, a covenant people. And so when you type into the chat, it reminds one another that we are a people covenanted to one another. The church is a people committed to God, covenanted to one another. So even though we're not gathering in person this morning or for the next four weeks, we continue to be the church, a covenanted people. And um, man, I wish you were here. The band was rocking it this morning. I hope you felt that from your couch or your living room, your dining room table, wherever you are this morning. Um, I can't wait for you to be back in the building. Um, that, that day will come again, but until it does, let's continue to act like Christ. And so this morning, there's really no announcements. Uh, we'll get back into announcements next week, but this morning, um, just I want to remind you to stay connected. Sign up for the Park Weekly. If you haven't, go on to our website, parkcommunitymn.com, and make sure you stay in the loop with things there. We will get you information. We, will get con we want to keep you connected over this next month as we are away from one another physically. We'll stay connected virtually and through phone calls and through texting and through emails. So make sure you do that. Um, why aren't you here? That's a great question. And like, continues to, like God continues to do, I make plans and he directs my steps. I had planned to preach on the Ten Commandments again this morning. And as this week unfolded, I felt like God would say, no, I, I want you to pause. God has been taking me personally on a journey of what it means to surrender my rights and to do, to do what's right. And I felt like he called me to pause this morning on the Ten Commandments yet again and to talk about this idea, surrendering our rights and doing what's right. Many people are asking the question, why would a church choose to go virtual when it's not mandated by the government? The governor has allowed churches to continue to gather in person. So why are we going virtual? It's a great question. It's a question that I have asked myself a ton uh, one second here as I clip this onto my back so it doesn't keep pulling on my face. Welcome to what's going on in my brain as I preach. Um, why would we do this even though the government hasn't mandated it? And we have wrestled with this long and hard this past week and I continue to wrestle with it. And I just want to pause today and talk about surrendering our rights and doing what's right. Now, before I even get into the sermon this morning, I want you to hear that what we are doing is not necessarily right for everyone in every church. We believe, our elder team believes, as we wrestled through this and prayed through this, that it's right for our church to go virtual for this season. That doesn't mean that we should judge other churches who don't go virtual. It also doesn't mean that we need to do what other churches are doing. God gives us freedom of choice and freedom of conscience, and each church is located in different communities, different neighborhoods. Their congregation has a different makeup, and so different churches are going to come to different conclusions on this, and that's okay and right and good. So as I say, the, the title for the sermon this morning is Surrendering Our Rights and Doing What's Right. Don't hear me say that the only right thing to do is for churches to go virtual right now. We believe deeply that that's the right thing for park community church. All right, so this morning as we go, we're going to look at reasons why we chose to go virtual. We're going to look at some practical reasons, 
pastoral reasons, personal reasons, and then we're going to look at a gospel response, how, what our attitude should be in this time. Um, let me pray before I get into it. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your presence with us and among us. Lord, you are in our living rooms. You are in our dining rooms. You are in bed with those who are still laying in bed with their phones, those without kids who can just hang out all day in their sweatpants in their beds. Lord, you are with us. Lord, we long to be with each other. Experiencing your presence among us is more powerful when we are in the presence of our brothers and sisters, the, the physical presence of our brothers and sisters. But Lord, in this season where it's been recommended that we don't do that, I pray that we would be powerfully reminded that you are with us. And I pray that we would be moved by your Holy Spirit to pick up the phone and text or call those who we care for and love. I pray that we would send emails, that we would write notes, that we would send cards to people in the church family, and that we would remind one another that we are a covenanted community, even when we're not gathering in the church building. We love you, Lord. I pray that you would give me wisdom today as we look at your word and discuss this important topic. We pray these things in your name. Amen. All right, just starting out, practical reasons for why we chose to go virtual. I'm not going to spend much time on this, but I just want you to know why our elders have made this decision. The Minnesota Department of Health strongly recommends churches to go virtual. Even though it's not mandated because there's First Amendment rights and the government got sued by churches of the spring when they did mandate it, so there's a lot to unpack there and think through, the Minnesota Department of Health has strongly recommended churches going virtual. And we have always said that we want to take the recommendations of the health professionals seriously and really wrestle through it and, and consider it. Health professionals in our own church recommend it. I'm up to 10 health professionals in our church that I've talked with now, and all 10 of them have recommended our church go virtual. And so I give that a ton of weight. Our elder team gives that a ton of weight. Now, the elders have been called to, to shepherd the church spiritually and to care about our spiritual health and our spiritual well-being and our emotional health and our emotional well-being and our mental health and our mental well-being. And absolutely gathering in person helps with spiritual, mental, and emotional health and well-being. But, but we felt like it, it, it warranted a lot of consideration that 10 of 10 health care workers and professionals in our church recommended going virtual. We're not putting the physical well-being above the spiritual well-being. We just think for this season, we have to give serious weight to and consideration to the fact that most of the medical professionals are recommending going virtual, especially those in our church, because they're part of our covenant church family, and they care about us. They care about you, and this is their recommendation. Thirdly, our volunteer force is thinning, and we want to respect them. Um, you know that it takes some volunteers to gather in person on a Sunday morning, and we have been simplifying our Sunday morning gatherings. We've been paring down on volunteers, but even with that, we continue to have certain volunteers say, I'm not comfortable to come for this in this season for this reason or that reason, and we want to respect that. We don't want to put pressure on our volunteers to show up to the building and make Sunday mornings happen. Fourthly, in love for our congregation and community, we want to err on the side of caution and protection, doing what we can to slow the spread. That's just pretty simple. And then the last one here is that our staff can do their jobs more effectively if we're not daily watching the numbers and having to make weekly decisions about whether or not it's wise together. I can't tell you how much time our staff and our leaders have spent having conversations about if it's wise or right together or not. 
these health professionals are saying this, these people are saying this, this news source said this, these numbers are this, here's how these numbers are interpreted. Is it wise? What's our congregation? What's the demographic? Who's sick? Who's not sick? How many volunteers have a cold? How many volunteers don't have a cold? What if one volunteer gets a cold? Somebody else just got a cold. Like, it's just a waste of our time. And we can't effectively disciple and, and, and lead the church and really deeply think about the spiritual well-being of the church if we're caught up thinking about the physical reality of whether or not we should gather. So this Sunday virtual live stream is very simple. A couple songs and a message. We want to actually ramp it up and to be able to incorporate some, some learning opportunities for the kids. We want to be able to do some interactive, fun kids lessons where our kids can learn about Jesus when we're, in, when we're virtual, not just forget about them. But if we're going week to week, looking at the numbers, trying to make a decision if we're going to gather or not, we don't have time to actually intentionally and creatively disciple the church. We're just stuck trying to figure out whether or not it's wise to gather. And so for those practical reasons, we decided to go virtual for the next four weeks, and we will reassess and recommunicate during that time. Now, deeper, let's move to the pastoral reasons. This is really where my heart is, and I've just been on a journey wrestling with God through this, and, and I want to kind of lead you through what God has put on my heart as I consider his word and what his word would have to say about this situation. His word doesn't have anything specific to say about how to handle COVID-19, right? But his word has a ton of principles to share. And tied to the, to the title of the sermon this morning, surrendering our rights and doing what's right, God's word has a ton to say about what it means to surrender our rights. And so if you have a Bible, please get a Bible. Um, if you don't have a Bible, you can find it online. Um, if you don't own a Bible and you want one, please email the church and we will send you a Bible this week so that you can track along with us. Today we're going to look at portions of 1 Corinthians chapter 8 through chapter 10. And as we do, what, what, what I want to just kind of mention before we get into these scriptures here is how discipled most of us have been by the world and how much most of us are products of the American culture. Now, we, we have some immigrants in our church who moved here from other countries, and so this is going to hit you maybe a little bit differently, but particularly the, the majority of our church family grew up in America as American citizens. And so we've been deeply shaped by living in America and what America stands for and America's value systems and American liberties, the right to, to pursue life, liberty, and happiness. And I'm so grateful for so many of those things. I'm personally just so grateful for so much of what we have in our country. But because of where we grew up and in and, and this idea of liberty and rights and freedom, I think we need to be careful not to assume that American freedom, American rights, and American liberties are the same as biblical freedom biblical rights, and biblical liberties. There's some overlap, but there's actually quite a bit of difference. And so this morning, we're going to look at what it means to surrender our rights. I don't know about you, but me growing up as an American, that's not something that I've heard or have been taught. We fight for our rights. We fight for our liberties. We fight for our freedoms. And so as I think about the COVID shutdown and all that, my natural reaction, one, in my flesh, because I'm a fighter and I don't like to be told what to do. I almost got suspended multiple times in high school because I don't like teachers telling me what to do. I'm trying to learn. Let God humble me. 
please tell me what to do. That's, that's part of the reason why I'm listening to the health professionals. Tell us what to do. Tell us what to do. Because my reaction is to say, don't tell me what to do. That's, that's my flesh. But I also think there's this reality of living in America that, that we've been so discipled by this idea of don't tell me what to do. I've got my individual rights. I've got my individual freedoms. I'm an American. Life, liberty, and happiness. That's what I pursue. And so as I wrestle with this COVID shutdown, my flesh and I think my American culture tells me to not, to, to not submit to the government fully. And I'm just wrestling with what God's word has to say about this. And so I want to bring you on the journey that I've been on this last week. 1 Corinthians 8 through 10. So open up your Bible. 1 Corinthians 8, we're going to look at the first one here. We must hold our perspectives loosely, very loosely. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 8. And actually, before I get into this, just to kind of set it in context, 1 Corinthians chapter 8 through chapter 10 is Paul teaching the church in Corinth about giving up their rights, giving up their individual freedoms, giving up their gospel freedoms for the sake of others. Chapter 8 is about food sacrifice to idols. Chapter 9 is about a pastor getting paid. And then chapter 10 is about, again, it's about idolatry and then giving up your rights. And so I'll explain this more as we go, but that's kind of the context here. Let's look at 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 through 3. Paul writes, Now, concer now concerning food offered to idols... We know that all of us possess knowledge. That was a phrase within the Corinthian church. That's why it's in parentheses there. He, he's using their own language, their own phrase to help instruct them. Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, but does not yet know as he does not yet know as he ought to know, but if anyone loves God, he is known by God. In this context, there, were, there, were, there was food being offered to idols in Gentile worship, in, in pagan worship. And Christians were split on whether or not they should eat that food. Some people thought because this food had been offered to, to idols and to demons, we have no part in eating of this food. And other people thought, no, food doesn't matter. It's just food. It, these idols aren't real. These demons, they have no power over us. Idols are, are fake things. They're things made of human hands to worship deep and dark, demonic things, things that have been led astray. And they're saying, but the idols have no control over us, nor do the demons that they represent, because we are Christ. We've been bought with a price. We, we praise Yahweh, the one true God. And so we can eat food offered to an idol because it has no power over us. And so there's this split in the church. And here's what's interesting for us to note in verse 2. Paul says, If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. Really, the word here, the, the word for knowledge is, is gnosis. It's where, we, where the Gnostics come from. They had this special knowledge. They, they had this, it means this personal experience that gives you, in your mind, this special revelation or this special knowledge. Because I have this experience, I'm right. That was happening in the church. And here Paul is saying, if anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. We must hold our perspectives loosely. The, the, the next word here, know, if anyone imagines that he knows something, it's kind of playing off this word the gnosis, Gnosticism, that if anyone has this special experience that, that puts them in a seat of authority, that they think they know what's right and wrong because of their experience, 
They imagine they know something. You see, even the language here, Paul says, if anyone imagines that he knows something. So much of our knowledge is imaginary knowledge, is it not? So much, so much of our perspective is personal opinion, personal experience, personal knowledge, personal imagination. He says, if anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. We must hold our perspectives loosely. Here's how this works out. If you are a healthy, able-bodied person and you get COVID, you'll likely be just fine. And so then your experience of COVID is that it's not that big of a deal. I know, I had it. But that's not the case for everybody. So don't imagine that you know how this continually evolving virus is impacting everybody. Now, there's data coming out and research, and we can learn, and we can come up with, with, with hypotheses, and we can come up with some understanding of what's going on, but I think this verse is reminding us to hold our perspectives very loosely, especially with something that's affecting the world and it's still evolving. Hold your perspectives loosely. This word for know, it can be perspective. It's experiential knowledge. It's, it's what you think about things based off your experience and your opinion. And so, one of the pastoral reasons for us to go virtual is because we don't want to get caught up in this debate of perspective and opinion and experience and this article versus this article and this stat versus this stat and this data versus this data. That's exhausting. And I think we're still too early in this thing to, to really have concrete facts. And here, Paul would remind us, if anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. Be slow to plant your flag in opinion that you have, which there's not consensus on. And I love verse 3. It just says, if anyone loves God, he is known by God. That's the greater truth. Love God. If you love God and you've received his son, Jesus Christ, you are known by God. All right, sex. Second thing here as we continue to move through this passage, we must avoid doing what makes others stumble. And so Paul starts out with this idea that if we know something, if we know that eating food sacrificed to idols isn't a sin, or eating food sacrificed to idols is a sin, based off of our experience, based off of our opinion, be careful to hold that opinion, to hold that perspective too tightly and enforce it upon others. Hold it loosely. Hold your perspective loosely. He continues on. I'm going to jump down to verse 8. Um, I'm not going to read all these passages because we're going through three different chapters, and so I need you to jump with me. You can read this on your own and kind of fill in some of the blanks later on, but jump down to verse 8. Paul writes, Food will not commend us to God. Again, so they're talking about food sacrificed to idols. Is it wrong or is it right to eat it? Some people think that not eating it will make us more appealing, more commendable to God. And he's saying food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat, and no better off if we do. Doesn't matter. Eat meat sacrificed to idols, don't eat meat sacrificed to idols. It doesn't matter. There's no power in that meat because God overpowers the demons that it was sacrificed to. And if you are in Christ, God sees you as holy, pure, spotless, righteous, blameless. You are his son. You are, you are his daughter. As verse 3 said, if you love God, you are known by God. You have this secure relationship with him. And so it doesn't matter if you eat the meat or not. We are verse 8, are no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do. Verse 9, but take care that this right of yours, 
Now we're getting into this idea of rights. That this right of yours, you have the right to eat meat or you have the right to not eat meat. Freedom of conscience. Take care of this right of yours that this right of yours did not, does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you having this knowledge, eating in an idol's temple, he will, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. Thus, sinning against your brother and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. Avoid doing what makes others stumble. That's Paul's principle here. He's saying, I have the right to eat meat, and oh, meat is so good. I'm a carnivore. I love meat, especially crusty meat. Like, get the outside of it crusty, the inside nice and juicy. Paul He's saying, I will never indulge in this luxury again if it causes a person to stumble. I have the right to eat meat, but if it causes somebody that I love, one of my brothers or sisters, to stumble and to, to wrestle with their conscience and to not understand the freedom of conscience, I'll never do it again. What a radical way to look at the world, to consider others more significant than himself. Now, a lot of people will say, well, isn't this a great opportunity for Paul to teach them the, the greater, more mature way? Yeah, absolutely. But his, his, his natural response isn't to say, I'm going to try and straighten this person up and get them to understand my perspective and get them to understand the deep truth behind this. He just says his default mode is to say, I won't do it if it causes them to stumble. And I would guarantee you that later on, Paul will try and teach them. And that's, in fact, what this letter is doing. But his default mode is to say, if this causes one of my brothers or sisters to stumble, I'm going to give it up. Now, there's an argument with COVID. You know, what's the weaker perspective, to gather or to not gather? I don't know. I think there's probably weaker brothers and sisters on both sides of that. Right? Like some people will say, well, if you, don't, if you wear a mask, you're fearing a virus. Where's your fear of God? I don't, I don't fear a virus, so I'm not going to wear a mask. Is that a weaker perspective or a stronger perspective? Some people wear 17 masks because they're afraid of the virus. And, and some people will say, well, well, God will protect you. And, and some people who wear masks will say, well, you ought to use common sense and wear a mask because there's more and more science coming out that it helps. And where's the weaker argument? Where's the weaker brother? We don't know. There's probably weaker brothers and sisters on both sides of that argument. So we can't get caught up in figuring that out. And our job as Christians isn't to try and convince other people of our perspectives. It's to avoid doing what would make others stumble. That's what Paul is saying. His perspective as a pastor, as a mature Christian, is that if what I'm doing causes somebody else to stumble, I will stop doing that thing. Next one. Let's continue as we move into chapter 9 here. Paul stops talking about eating meat sacrificed to idols, and he talks about he talks about getting paid. So Paul didn't take payment from the church in Corinth because they had other teachers that were coming and they were teaching for money, they were teaching for profits, they were teaching to get rich. And so because of that, the church in Corinth, they would assume that if a preacher was getting paid, it's because they just wanted to get money. They're like prosperity gospel preachers. And Paul said, I want these people to hear the gospel, and so therefore I'm going to give up my right to be paid by them. 
And Paul, Paul unpacks here in chapter 9 that the scriptures say that somebody who proclaims the gospel, somebody who works as a pastor preaching and teaching the gospel, they deserve to be paid for their labor. But Paul gives up that right so as to not create an obstacle to the good news of Jesus Christ in Corinth. Look at verse 12 of chapter 9. Paul says, If others share this rightful claim on you, do we not even more? He's saying if others can come to you and, and they can preach Jesus and they can say because of this we ought to be paid, do we not even all the more because I'm an apostle? I have some apostolic authority. So, so Paul has the right to ask this church for payment for his ministry. Middle of verse 12, he says, Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. That's the Christian posture, that we endure anything to avoid creating obstacles to the gospel. Paul is saying, I, I will give up the right to be paid if that means you don't hear the good news of Jesus Christ. I'll figure out a different way to get paid. Earlier in the chapter, he says, I, I have the right to eat and drink, but I'll give that up for your sake. I have the right to have a wife, but I give that up for your sake if that's a stumbling block. I have the right to get paid, but I'll give that up if that's a stumbling block. The posture here, the point here isn't to stop paying me. <laughs> it's to point out the posture that I, as your pastor, actually, I need to be willing to say, don't pay me if that's what's going to be a stumbling block for the gospel. If this church would hear the good news of Jesus Christ more if their pastor didn't pay, take a paycheck, that has, to be my, that has to be my decision. Thank you for not feeling that way. Brittany and I deeply thank you for that. Ben deeply thanks you for that. Ben and Jenny, Mark and Jen, our whole staff. But this is the Christian attitude and perspective. We endure anything to avoid creating obstacles. So for Paul, in this, in this situation, in this city, he took payment in other cities. So again, as I even mentioned, there's, there's a unique way for different churches and different communities to handle these things. And Paul's saying, in this church, in this community, in this city, I can't take payment because my payment would create a stumbling block. Even though I have the right. As an apostle, he could say to the church, you owe me. If I'm going to come and do gospel ministry in your midst, Here's what I demand for payment. He has the right to do that, biblically speaking. He says, I'm not going to. I'm going to lay down my rights. I'm going to surrender my right to be paid because I care more about them hearing about Jesus. Amen? Thank you. Amen. Type it in. Endure anything to avoid creating obstacles. Let's keep reading. Verse 13. Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple at the, and those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings. In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. That's his right. See that? He's saying, the Lord said those who proclaim the gospel should make their living by the gospel. That's a right of Paul's. But he's saying, I lay it down. Verse 15, he says, but I have made no use of any of these rights. Nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision. He's saying, I'm not even being manipulative here. 
I'm not saying I have the right to claim payment and I'm not claiming it so that you will in pity pay me. He's saying, no, I, I, that's not why I'm writing. Look at the end of verse 15. He says, for I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my grounds for boasting, boasting in the gospel. Here's the Christian perspective and the Christian posture. It's that we ought to be willing to die before we compromise the gospel. Willing to die before we compromise the gospel. What's Paul's concern here? His concern is putting obstacles in the way for people to hear the gospel. And he says, I would rather die. And some of us are unwilling to wear a mask. Some of us are unwilling to, to listen to the recommendations of the, hate for, of the health and state department. Paul says, I'd rather die than demand money from the church and them not hear the gospel because I, because I muddied the waters. That's just radical. That's biblical culture. That is not, church, hear me, that is not, that is not the air that we breathe in American culture. The air that we breathe in American culture is I have my rights, I have my liberty, I have my land, I have my way of doing things. Don't tread on me. That's my fleshly reaction because in my flesh, I don't want people to tell me what to do. And I grew up in America and, I, and I've been breathing this air that we have the rights to do what we want, when we want, how we want. Don't you come on my property. Don't you tell me what to do. Don't you give me mandates. Don't you give me restrictions. And that is not biblical. Listen to Paul's heart. I have made no use of any of these rights. For I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my grounds for boasting in the gospel. I would rather die than compromise the gospel. Let's keep going. Another Christian perspective, a pastoral reason why we've chosen to go virtual is because Paul teaches us to serve all, particularly those with a different perspective. Serve all, particularly those with a different perspective. Look at verse 19. He says, for though I am free from all, he doesn't have American freedoms, he has biblical freedoms because he's in Christ. Christ has set him free. He can eat meat, he cannot eat meat. He can take money, he cannot take money. He can have a wife, he cannot have a wife. He can eat and drink, he cannot eat and drink. It doesn't matter. There's freedom in Christ. And he says, for though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant or a slave to all. See, his freedom actually hemmed him in even more. He said, for though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. So the, our, our perspective, our call is to serve all of people, particularly those with a different perspective. That's what Paul is saying. I have freedom, yet I've made myself a servant. I've humbled myself. I've put myself underneath other people, especially those with a different perspective, and I'm serving them. And continuing on, let's look at what I mean by particularly with a different perspective. Verse 20, he says, to the Jews I became a Jew 
in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, that not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. Here's what he's saying. When I'm among the religiously strict Jews, I will conform to their religious rules. He's teaching, he's pushing them, right? But his, 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 his natural bend is to say, okay, I, I will do things in life your way so that I win a hearing among you to point you to the gospel. When he's doing life with Gentiles, with Greeks, non-Jews, people who don't understand religious culture and customs, he's saying, I, 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 I act like them, I think like them. It, it doesn't mean that he starts sinning like them, but he's saying, I, I, I become like them. I assimilate to their culture. I contextualize the gospel to their culture, to their neighborhoods, to these people. Whether it's a religious culture or an irreligious culture, I'm free. I can be religious or I can be irreligious. I mean, he he can't sin. He's not free to sin. In Christ, he's free. He's not bound by religious tradition. He's saying, but I gave up all that so that I could serve anyone, anywhere, anytime. To the Jews, I became a Jew. To the Greeks and Gentiles, I became a Greek and Gentile. He says, to those outside the law, I became as one outside the law. Pick it up in verse 22. He says, to the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. What's the weaker perspective? To not gather or to gather? To not wear a mask or to wear a mask? I don't know. It depends on who you're asking. Some people wear 17 masks out of fear. And they need to be reminded that God ordains our life. Maybe one mask is good. Some people walk around flippantly without masks because they say, God will protect me. And and then we need to say, well, do you have life insurance? Do you have house insurance? Do you wear your seatbelt? There's still some common sense. And the point here, though, isn't to get caught up in those arguments. Paul's saying, I defer to the weaker perspective, whatever that may be. Verse 22, to the weak, I became weak that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I might share with them in its blessings. Paul would rather share with these people in the blessings of the gospel than get caught up in debate and in opinion and perspective about religious do's and religious don'ts, political do's and political don'ts. These facts versus these facts. It's like, I'm going to just humble myself to the weak I'm going to become weak so that I could share with them the gospel message. He's saying, serve all. You have the freedom And the gospel freedom calls you to lay down your rights for the sake of others, church family. Particularly those with a different perspective. Doesn't mean don't have robust conversations and to try and teach and to try and look at things from different angles, but he's saying your MO, your posture ought to to be like, if I disagree with this person, I'm going to humble myself to listen to their perspective, to learn from their perspective, and and I want to build a bridge for the gospel, whether they're already a Christian or not. I want to build a bridge, not a barrier. So how can I conduct my life in such a way that I would build a bridge into their life rather than a barrier? You need to think deeply about that with masks, with church gatherings, with whether or not you have family over for Thanksgiving. Just think deeply about it. 
Am I building gospel bridges? Or am I putting up gospel barriers? Let's keep going. Paul moves into chapter 10. In the first part of chapter 10, he's talking about idolatry. And then the second part of chapter 10, he's kind of coming back again to this, this topic of food sacrifice to idols. And here's the principle that he teaches us. The conscience of others overrides personal liberties. What? The conscience of others overrides your personal liberty. Look at what he says in verse 10. Uh, chapter 10, verse 28 and 29. This is all, again, all in the context of whether or not you eat meat sacrificed to idols. He says, but if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, talking about the meat, then do not eat it. For the sake of the one who informed you and not for the sake of conscience. I do not mean your conscience, but his. He's saying, don't eat it if it would wreck the conscience of another person. Even though you have the liberty, even though you have the right to eat meat, you, you understand that this meat sacrificed to an idol is not going to condemn me or commend me to God. It's superfluous. It's meat. It was offered to an idol made with hands in worship of a demon, but God Yahweh is above those demons. God Yahweh is in me. I don't have to fear this meat sacrifice to idols. I have freedom to eat it or to not eat it. And he's saying, you defer yourself to the conscience of the other person. Verse 29, he says, I do not mean your conscience, but his. For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? He's not saying that as... as planting the flag, saying, my liberty shouldn't be determined by your conscience. He's saying that that's exactly how it is. That's the, that's the question that the Corinthians are asking. Why should my liberty be determined by what somebody else thinks? And he's saying, because that's how you build bridges to the gospel. You meet them where they're at. You meet them on their turf. You speak their language. You get to know their language. You get to know their culture. You get to know their customs. You get to know their heart idols. And the only way to do that is to meet them on their turf. Humble yourself. Submit yourself. For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? Verse 29, isn't that the cry of American culture? My liberties, my rights, my freedoms are mine. You have no say to mess with them. And Paul, Paul is just, the, the biblical culture, the biblical perspective flips that straight on its head. It says, your freedom is to care more about others than self. For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? Continuing on, he says, another perspective and principle for Christians is to not seek our own good or advantage. Look at, back up at verse 24 of chapter 10. He says, let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Wow. That just, there it is. You're not free to seek your own good. You are free to seek the good of your neighbor. Now, in this season, what's good for your neighbor? To be isolated or to be with people? Depends on your neighbor, probably. <laughs> that can go either way, right? It's par part of this is so hard. We have to extend each other extreme amounts of grace because this thing is evolving. Nobody knows what they're doing. And as Christians, we just ought to press into this with Christ-like attitudes 
not personally developed opinions. Paul says, let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. I don't know, some of you, your neighbors might need to be reminded that their physical health is less important than their mental, spiritual, and emotional health. Loving your neighbor might mean nudging them out of the house. It might mean nudging them to have social interaction. For others, the good of your neighbor might be nudging them to take this thing a little bit more seriously, to wear their mask, to, to, to honor social distancing, to stay in their home, to not go everywhere for Thanksgiving. The principle here is that as Christians, we're not called to seek our own good, but the good of our neighbor. And then also look down at verse 32 and 33. We're also not called to seek our own advantage, but the advantage of others. 32 and 33. Uh, Let's pick it up in verse 31. Paul says, So whether you eat or drink, do whatever you do all to the glory of God. Whether you gather or go virtual, do it all to the glory of God. Verse 32. Give no offense to the Jews or to the Greeks or to the church of God. Just as I tried to please everyone in everything that I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many that they may be saved. You see the radical nature of what it means to follow Christ? It means you're not seeking your own good and your own advantage. It means you're seeking the good and the advantage of your neighbor. You have to get out of the driver's seat. I have to get out of the driver's seat. I do not want to be virtual. I didn't go into pastoral ministry to preach at a camera. I didn't go into pastoral ministry to figure out week by week what the numbers are and how we ought to be thinking about COVID. And... But it's not about what I want. This morning, as I was leaving to come to the building, my son, my, my seven-year-old son, Jude, was like, Dad, I want to come to church with you. I know you do, buddy, and I want you to come to church with me. Your best friends are here. I, I deeply believe that part of the church gathering, that, that as the church gathers and in he, as he interacts with friends his age and he, as he sees people worshiping Jesus, that's an a essential step in him becoming like Christ and making his faith his own. And yet I think in this season, seeking the advantage of others means to give it up. For a season, we're not being asked to change what we believe, what we preach, what we teach, what we sing. We haven't even been mandated to stay at home. We're allowed to come to church, but our team, as we wrestle this through and think this through, we think seeking the advantage, seeking the good, seeking the love of our neighbors is to go virtual against our own wants, desires, and perspectives because we're trying so hard to to root this decision in God's word for our church placed in our community. Which brings me to the last point here on pastoral reasons. Surrendering our rights to gather at this time seems seems to be the greater opportunity for discipleship and evangelism. As we wrestle through this and think through this and pray through this, I genuinely believe that surrendering the right to gather for this season, okay, for this amount of time, for, for, a, for a small window, and we'll reassess, but it seems to be the greater opportunity for discipleship and evangelism. Discipleship is generally thought of as helping Christians become more Christ-like. 
Evangelism is generally thought of as helping non-Christians to understand Christ and to hear about Christ and to know who Christ is. And think about it as gospel witness to non-believers. And I think in both, as I read these passages and reflect on these passages, I think the American church in general, but I can't speak to the American church in general as much as I can speak to our local church, part community church that I've been called to pastor, I think the greatest discipleship need for us is to understand what it means to surrender our rights. Because I think we've been so deeply steeped in a culture that says, don't give up your rights, fight for your rights, protect your rights, protect your freedom, protect your liberty. And I just, as I read scripture, Paul is saying, I would rather die than cling to my rights if it creates a barrier for somebody to see the gospel. And that's not my heart posture. And as I talk with Christians, I don't think that's the average heart posture. And so I think the discipleship opportunity for us as Christians is to learn to lead the way in what it looks like to surrender our rights for the common good, to seek the good of our neighbors, not the good of ourselves, to seek the advantage of another, not the advantage of self. And also evangelism. In our unique community, I think giving up this right for a season of time communicates a better picture of the gospel to our community. And that seems to be a lot of what Paul is concerned about. To the Jew, I become a Jew. To the Greek, I become a Greek. To the weaker, I become weaker. I'll give it all up so as not to create a barrier for the gospel, but to build a bridge. And I think in our community, I live in St. Louis Park. My kids go to school in St. Louis Park. Our building is located in St. Louis Park. We have neighbors who watch what we do at the building. I'm convinced that in this community, in this season, the better picture of neighbor love is to go virtual for a season. So those are some pastoral reasons why we've chosen to go virtual. I'm going to fly quickly through just a few personal reasons. A few personal reasons. 1 Timothy chapter 1, this is also a pastoral reason, but it kind of bleeds into a personal reason. Flip over to 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 3 through 7. Paul writes to Timothy, the pastor in Ephesus. He says, I urge you as I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculation rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussions, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or things about which they make confident assertions. A personal reason for me to go virtual right now is as I reflect on this verse, the aim of my charge as your pastor is love that issues from a pure heart, a good conscience, and sincere faith. Going virtual just seems more loving. I have a more clear conscience about it than I do not. In order to justify continuing to gathering right now in this current climate and culture with with everything else that has been shut down, I would have to get caught up into what verse 4 says, myths. Myths there, it, it can be conspiracy, ideas, ideology, um, evolving facts. The only way that I, that I can be convinced that gathering right now is the right thing for our church in our community is if I get caught up in myth and evolving fact and, and 
take on a little bit of conspiracy theory stuff, and it's out there. But Paul says that for a pastor, the aim of his charge is love that issues from a pure heart, a good conscience, sincere faith. Don't get caught up in something that creates, verse 4, promotes speculation rather than stewardship. There's so much speculation right now about politics, about COVID, about how COVID's handled. So much speculation. Years from now, we'll probably look back and say, okay, the people that were speculating this way were right. The people that were speculating this way were right. Or maybe they were all right a little bit. And the, right? Years from now, we'll look back and we'll, we'll start to understand some of the speculation. But right now in the moment, I, as your pastor, can't get, get, get caught up in speculation. I have to steward our witness to our community and our love for one another. And so that's a personal reason why I believe this is the right decision. Secondly, I can't find biblical precedent that leads me to believe in-person gathering is the right thing for our church in our community in this unprecedented time. I already talked about that. Other churches are coming to different conclusions, and I think they are fine, and they are right to do that. Romans 14 tells us about freedom of conscience, freedom of conviction, freedom of choice. For me, in our unique community, I just can't find any biblical precedent. Some pastors will use Hebrews chapter 10, verse 25, which says, do not neglect gathering together as a reason to continue to gather whether or not the government mandates it, whether or not the health professionals discourage it. Hebrews 10, 25 does not apply to the Sunday morning gathering in a church building. It's just a principle that Christians need to continue to gather, to meet together, to encourage one another. That could be Zoom. It could be group phone calls. It's meeting outside, it's meeting at restaurants, coffee shops, bars, and pubs, and I know you can't do any of those things right now either. But you can't use Hebrews 10.25 to justify how you gather. Thirdly, I must obey God, not man. In Acts chapter 5, verse 29, the apostles are asked to stop proclaiming the gospel, and their response is, we must obey God, not man. I want you to be reminded, nobody's asking us to change our message, to change our truth, to change what we preach, what we teach, what we sing. They're recommending that we change the form of how we communicate those things for a season. I must obey God and not man. And the way that I'm applying scripture to this situation, obedience for me is to go virtual. And you're stuck with me as your pastor. Sorry. And our elder team has wrestled through this and prayed through this. And we agree. This may not be the right thing for others. I know churches down the street who are doing it differently and I respect their decisions. I know churches down the street who are also going virtual, and I think it's right for their congregation, and I respect their decisions. Lastly, I must be true to my conscience and conviction, otherwise I'm willfully sinning, according to Romans chapter 14 and James chapter 4, verse 17. If I'm not true to my personal conscience and conviction on this, I'm willfully sinning. And I don't think you want a pastor who's willfully sinning more than you want a pastor who's willing to go with certain interpretations of evolving facts and bend the decisions for the common good of the church or what the loudest voices think or what the quietest voices think. I just, as I wrestle with scripture, church family, my conscience on this is that it's best for our church to go virtual for this season. And once God, that revealed, once God revealed that to me, there was no other choice because I can't get up and preach to you if I'm willfully sinning. I'm a sinner through and through. I've been saved by grace, but I continue to wrestle with sin, but I can't willfully sin, right? And so that's some of the reasons. I want to close this morning with our gospel response. 
our gospel response. So flip with me to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2, I'm going to read verses 13 through 25, and the band's going to come back up, and if you have communion, take it where you are as the band plays. If you don't have communion, it's, it's weird. I don't even know if I want to, I'm, I'm not going to lead virtual communion this morning. Um, if you have communion elements there, take it as the band plays it. You and the Lord, knowing that your church community is with you, um, I'm just going to close out with reading 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 13 through 25, and the band's going to lead us out in a song. Would you look at this passage with me? The Apostle Peter writes, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect Not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to God, who judges justly. And if you're taking communion at home, cling to this passage as you do it this morning. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were strained like sheep but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your soul. God, I thank you for speaking to us. I pray that you would form us around your words, not our opinions, not my interpretation and application of your word, but your word. Lord, each of us are going to apply it a little bit differently here and there, but I pray overall, corporately as a church, that we would be conformed to it in unity. Lord, we thank you that you bore our sin in your body on a tree and that by your wounds we have been healed. Forgive us, heal us, and commission us to live for you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you.